Section 5 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 8, May 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 8, May 1896. Section 5 The Shifting Sand by C. C. Van Arsdell. I had been knocking about the mountains for several weeks, when one evening I found myself in front of a little cabin, nestled at the foot of a great mountain and facing a level stretch of sandy plain, dotted with clumps of sagebrush. My horses were tired from an unusually hard day's jaunt, and I was so weary of the solitude of the great trees and hills and the monotony of self-communion that I was very glad to pitch camp for the night in a place that promised human companionship. Dismounting, I removed the saddle from the animal I had been riding, and was busy untying the cords which bound my camp outfit to the other, when I noticed both animals prick up their ears and look intently across the plain. Looking in that direction, I saw coming slowly toward me the figure of a man. An old man, apparently, for his long hair and longer beard were snowy white, and his tall form was bent, as with the weight of years. He was dressed in the ordinary garb of a miner, heavy high-top boots, blue denim overalls and jumper, and broad-brimmed white hat. In one hand he carried a long staff, which he occasionally thrust sharply into the sand as he advanced, pausing frequently for a backward glance across the plain. When he had drawn nearer, I noticed that his staff was peculiarly shod with a long, sharp piece of steel. He was within a few yards of where I stood, when, turning from a last backward glance, his eyes met mine. Deep-set, penetrating eyes, looking out from beneath heavy white eyebrows, and taking in with one quick, comprehensive glance my whole array of intruding forces. I am not by nature a timid man, and years of frontier life have given me an assurance which seldom deserts me, but I do not mind confessing that, as I looked into those eyes, I felt decidedly uneasy as to my reception. I knew instinctively that I stood in the presence of no ordinary backwoodsman, whose rude hospitality belongs to every wayfarer by the right of an unwritten law of frontier etiquette. The cordial tone of his rich voice, as he bade me good evening, reassured me so much, however, that I asked permission to stay all night, hastening to add my name, address, and occupation. He readily assented, and after showing me where to picket my horses, led the way into the cabin, where he soon prepared a supper to which I did the full justice of a keen appetite. When the table had been cleared away, and a fresh log laid upon the fire, I got out my pipe and tobacco, offering my host some of the latter, which he accepted, and we were soon chatting together with that cordial good fellowship peculiar to men under the influence of the seductive weed. I had confided to him my mania for prospecting, still persistent after years of fruitless efforts to strike it rich, and there had fallen between us a short silence, during which I allowed my thoughts to drift away to a sweet-faced woman whom I had loved silently, hopelessly, for so many years. Suddenly my host's voice recalled me to the present. A mania, you called it, he was saying, and rightly too, as are all other forms of our greed for gold. God knows no one can realize this truth more bitterly than I. 
the weariness in his voice impressed me painfully. And as the lighted match which he held to his pipe flared up, I noted with new interest the deep-set eyes, out of which all gladness had gone, the fine, shapely head with its crown of snowy hair, the broad sweep of white forehead, and the rugged lines of the face which must have been handsome in his youth. I was speculating as to what his story might be, or that he had a story that set him apart from the common run of men everything about him plainly declared, when he took his pipe from his mouth, and without preface or apology, began. I have lived in this cabin for eighteen years, never leaving it, except for semi-annual visits to the little town across the mountains for my supplies. Eighteen years ago this month I discovered a rich ledge, bearing gold and silver, up the mountainside about a mile. I had high hopes and worked hard, for I possessed the mightiest incentive that can nerve a man to wrest a fortune from fate. A loving little woman back in New England awaited my return. Her father, a wealthy, hard-headed old farmer, disapproved of me on general principles, but especially because of my poverty. When I had ten thousand dollars in cash, he said, I might claim her for my wife. We believed the condition equivalent to a refusal of my suit, for the toiling and saving of a lifetime would scarcely win that much money from the few stony acres I possessed. But youth is hopeful and resourceful, and so I left my sweetheart, who promised, amid her tears, to be faithful till death, and started for the Golden West. I had poor success, however, and at the end of five years was little better off than when I left home. Then it was that I stumbled, quite accidentally, upon the ledge up the mountainside, so accidentally that I believed it nothing short of providential. Poor fool! He laughed bitterly, and then sat watching the smoke which curled in fantastic wreaths from his pipe. For some time I worked as seldom men worked before, as men can work only when nerved by such hopes as were mine. But I was soon forced to the conclusion that I must have assistance and machinery to develop my mind, both of which required capital, and that I did not have. One day I set out on foot across the mountain in search of someone who would advance the necessary capital for an interest in my mine. You may be sure that it was only after a severe struggle that I brought myself to this step. In the first place, I was so greedy for gold that I dreaded sharing the profits with anyone else. And on the other hand, it was no easy matter to induce anyone to invest in a quartz mine, for this section was then mad on placer mining. Upon reaching town I went straight to the post office, where, as I expected, I found a letter from my sweetheart. I carried it unopened to my room at the hotel, and sat down to read it, thinking that it would give me new courage for my quest. The old man paused. Something in his voice kept me silent, too though I longed to question him as to the outcome of his story. Suddenly he roused himself from his reverie, and continued as abruptly as he had ceased. I need not tell you that my letter contained a story as old as love itself, the story of a woman's faithlessness. It put out the light of my life in one cruel blow. I did not heed the protestations, all blotted with her tears. I grasped only the one vital point, that she was no longer mine to win, since she had yielded her vows to a richer man. And the bitterness of this blinded me to all else. 
All night long I sat with the letter in my hand, and when morning came I started home, following the instinct which leads the wounded animal back to its familiar haunts to die. For a long, long time I lay in my little bunk yonder, praying for death, and then there grew in my mind the suggestion of suicide. In a stupid way I reviewed all the routes to eternity at my disposal, but with the fastidiousness of a sick brain I rejected them one after another. There was my rifle, or my hunting knife, but the thought of their bloody mutilation turned me sick. Then there was a rope, and there, pointing to the stout beam over our heads, was the impromptu gallows. At this gruesome suggestion I could not repress a shudder, and was glad that my tell-tale face was hidden by the gathering gloom. But I was something of a gentleman in my youth, and hanging was too suggestive of the felon to be pleasant. I got up at last and dragged myself outside the cabin. Sitting in the sunshine, I lifted my eyes to the westward, and then leaped to my feet, shouting for insane joy. A great bank of gray clouds lay almost touching the mountain tops, and in those clouds was the solution to the riddle of my taking off. I was mad, you see. He refilled and relighted his pipe before proceeding. You noticed, this evening, the level stretch of plain to the eastward. The soil is a loose, light sand, and the terrific winds which occasionally sweep down over the mountains play mad pranks with it. Great hills and hollows are piled up and scooped out. Familiar landmarks are obliterated and new ones uncovered today, and tomorrow the inconstant wind will undo its work, leaving the plain as level as a floor. In the bank of clouds I saw the promise of one of these periodic storms, and like an inspiration to my muddled brain came the idea of fashioning myself a grave, in which I could lie down, allowing the wind to wrap me deeply in a winding sheet of sand. To think was to act. With a nervous energy, born of my madness, I seized a spade and hastened out onto the plain. The old man got up and went to the door. The full moon had climbed well up the heavens, shedding a soft, weird glory over the plain. It wasn't far, just out yonder, at the foot of a giant sagebrush, that I chose a spot for my grave. I had risen and stood beside him, looking out across the sand, dotted with numberless sagebrushes, lifting their stunted limbs to the sky. I had no idea which particular shrub he meant, but the awesome story, and his motionless intent attitude, which recalled his frequent halting and backward glances, as I had watched him coming across the plain in the evening, kept me dumb. He stood thus for some time, and then, with a deep sigh, resumed his seat. But I dropped down upon the doorstep. The moonlight was pleasanter than the ghostly shadows of the cabin. I worked rapidly, pausing for an occasional reassuring glance at the bank of clouds. I had scooped out the sand to a depth of perhaps three feet, when the point of my spade unexpectedly came in contact with a hard surface. The bedrock, I ventured as the old man stopped short, as though overcome by the memories he had invoked. No, and this was what surprised, almost terrified me. I knew that the sand was from ten to twenty feet deep, and it was impossible that I could have reached bedrock so close to the surface. Carefully pushing the point of my spade about, I found that the obstruction was apparently circular, and perhaps three feet in diameter. A few moments' work cleared away the intervening sand, disclosing a flat, round rock. 
using my spade as a pry, I lifted the rock slowly from its resting place, and perhaps you can imagine my surprise when I uncovered the dark mouth of a well. I am not naturally a physical coward, but my nerves were so unstrung by all that had gone before that it was several minutes before I could bring myself to investigate this unexpected development of my grave. At last, however, I secured a pitch stick from the cabin for a torch, and returned to follow this new lead to its conclusion. Thrusting the lighted stick into the opening, I found that the well was about four feet deep, and that the sides were walled with rough stones fitted together without mortar. At the bottom, on one side, was a small opening. Lowering myself into the well, I thrust the torch ahead, and cautiously crawled through this opening, to find myself in a small chamber high enough to admit of my standing upright. The walls of the chamber were of the same rude masonry as the well, while the ceiling was composed of stout poles laid closely together and resting upon the stone walls. Raising the torch above my head, I made a rapid survey of the room. Scattered about the floor were rude implements of stone, specimens of primitive pottery, small jars, covered and uncovered, bows and arrows of gaily painted wood, arrowheads, and spear points. I knew, at once, that I was standing in an ancient Indian grave, and was, therefore, hardly prepared for the ghastly picture which was revealed when the light of the torch put the host of lurking shadows to flight. Sitting bolt upright against the farther wall, grotesquely hideous with feathers and other savage adornments, and wrapped about with gaudy robes, falling away from the skeleton forms and decaying tatters, were three figures. It was not a pleasant sight, nor one I cared to look upon. The dark faces with their rows of shining teeth, from which the withered lips were drawn in sardonic grins, and the staring caverns which the flickering light filled with phantom eyes. I turned again, with idle curiosity, to the pottery. Pushing off the cover of the jar nearest me, I cautiously thrust my hand into the mouth, and lifted it full to the light, and then I dropped upon my knees, staring stupidly at the glittering heap of yellow sand in my open palm, asking myself if I were dreaming ounces of pure, bright gold. As the stupendous fact worked itself through my bewildered brain, I laughed aloud, moving from jar to jar. All told the same story save two, gold, and full almost to the brim, gold enough for a king's ransom, and all mine for the taking. And then, upon my elation, broke the flood of my misery. I was rich now, but, oh God, of what use? With the irony of an accursed fiend, Fortune had waited until I was ready to die, until my hopes were already dead, and then overwhelmed me with her golden shower. I raved and cursed until I was exhausted, and then fell prone upon the floor, overcome by my passion. Presently, I grew calmer. The storm of my rage had carried away with it all pain and disappointment. The basilisk glitter of the gold had got into my eyes, conjuring into life another sort of demon than despair. I was rich, and riches meant much, more than love or happiness, perhaps. Riches meant power and revenge. I could go back to my old home and live like a prince, her next-door neighbor. Many things come to him who has had the patience to wait and the money to do. I had both, and would be ready when the time came to pay off her father, her husband, herself, in the devil's coin of hate the debt I owed them. 
So long I gloated over my suddenly acquired wealth and my wild imaginings of revenge, that the charnel-house air of the chamber extinguished my torch, leaving me in Egyptian darkness. With a muttered curse at my stupidity, I flung the useless stick away, and groping about, caught up one of the precious jars, and worked my way to the opening. It was no easy task without a light, and I was very glad to find myself at last in the well, still holding the jar against my rapidly beating heart. When I lifted my face above the opening in the well, I was greeted with a blinding, biting shower of sand. The storm, which was to have been my sexton, had come, and, as if to punish me for my defection, buffeted me most cruelly. Carefully replacing the cover to the well after I had climbed out, I lifted my jar of gold in my arms and started for the cabin. The sky was overcast, and the blinding, whirling sheets of sand so bewildered and exhausted me that once or twice I thought I should have to give up trying to reach shelter. At last, however, I stumbled across the threshold of this room, more dead than alive, and I believe I never before or since was so glad to get inside these four walls. All night long the wind raged with a fury I have never known since in the long years of my residence here. When morning came, my first thought was of my treasure house. I hastily dressed and stepped outside, the sun was just above the horizon, smiling genially upon the quiet landscape, which some way looked very strange to my anxious eyes as they sought the peculiar sagebrush which marked the entrance to the grave. Not a landmark could I see. With fiendish malignity the wind had effaced every familiar bush and hillock and ravine. The plain lay glittering in the sunlight, a gray, level, interminable waste of sand. I returned to the cabin disappointed and chagrined but not uneasy, and thinking myself lucky to have fetched one jar with me, I stooped and stroked its ugly sides with a miser's tenderness. Then, to reassure myself by a sight of the yellow dust, I put my hand into the jar and lifted it full to the light. I think I went mad again for a moment, for when I came to myself I was standing over the shattered jar, looking down upon its scattered contents, which twinkled in the patch of sunlight from the open door white, red, and yellow beads. In the darkness I had got hold of one of the only two jars in the grave which did not contain gold. But surely you found the grave again, I said. The old man shook his head. From that day to this I have been searching for the entrance to the grave. I have gone over every foot of yon sand. Storms have swept over it, casting up and tearing down hillocks, covering and uncovering sagebrush, but never once revealing the secret held fast in the shifting sand. Day after day, armed with my steel-shod pole, I've sought, so fruitlessly that I should be tempted to believe the whole thing a delusion of my overwrought mind, were it not for the shattered jar and the beads which I have in my cupboard. I cannot tear myself away from the accursed, hopeless search, which has grown to be a mania that nothing but death can cure. The sky had become overcast as he ceased, and the soft soughing of the pines told of a rising wind. It is going to blow tonight, and that means no sleep for me, said my host, arousing as from a dream after a long silence. But you are tired, and I have thoughtlessly kept you awake. Let me show you where to make your bed. I was soon stretched between blankets and left alone to sleep. 
but the strange story to which I had just listened had so impressed me that for hours I lay awake, thinking how curiously the man's early history coincided with my own. The mania for gold, the incentive to treasure-hunting, love for a beautiful woman, the exile to the mountains, were all the same. Only in my case the woman loved was bound to me by no spoken tie. Years ago I had vowed that I would never ask Agnes to be my wife until I had made a fitting home for her, and it had been this apparently hopeless ambition that had sent me away to the mountains, where I determined to remain until either death or fortune cured me of my mania. Tonight, as I lay revolving in my mind every detail of the story of my host, I felt that death alone would effect the cure. Just as I sank into a light slumber, a lusty halloo shook my drowsy senses, then voices in the tramping of horses broke irregularly into the softer monotony of the rising wind, and presently my host entered with someone, who, like myself, spread his blankets upon the floor, and then, lulled by the wind, I fell fast asleep. When I awoke, the sun was streaming in at the open door of the cabin. Leisurely dressing myself, I went outside to look after my horses, and met the stranger, a prospector like myself. As we exchanged words of greeting, my eyes traveled carelessly across the plain until they were arrested by an object lying at the foot of a giant shrub, an object so like the figure of a man that I broke off what I was saying and ran swiftly towards it, with a strange fear tugging at my heart, a fear soon justified. Lying on his back, his white face upturned to the smiling sky, I found my old host, his madness cured at last. Grasped firmly in both hands and lying partly across his dead body was the steel-shod pole, the point thrust deeply into the loose sand. Together, the stranger and I carried him to the cabin, and then I went to bring a coroner from the settlement across the mountain, leaving the stranger to keep vigil. As the last rays of the setting sun slanted across the fateful plain, we buried him close by his cabin door, with a crumpled, time-seared letter from his sweetheart hidden over his peaceful heart. The coroner took possession of his effects, among which we found the broken jar and the beads. The next morning we separated and went our several ways. For two days I traveled, and then a thought, which had haunted me ever since I found the old man lying dead, caused me to retrace my steps. My suspicions proved correct. I found that the point of his staff had touched a rock, the entrance to his long-sought treasure-house, and the shock of joy had killed him. The interior of the grave was as he had described it to me, and, but why go into details? Fortune, not death, cured my mania, and satisfied my ambitions. A month later I was married to Agnes. End of Section 5 Recording by Todd End of The Black Cat Volume 1, Number 8, May 1896